Well, good morning, church family. If you have a Bible, I'd invite you to turn with me to Revelation chapter 3. If you need help finding the book of Revelation, it's at the back of your Bibles. It's the last book of the Bible. And if you're using one of those red pew rack Bibles there in the rack in front of you, it's on page 1093. As you turn there to Revelation chapter 3, I wanted to take a minute to think about alarm clocks. Unless you're one of those select few who wake up at the same time every day with those special internal alarm clocks, I imagine that each of you this morning were awakened by some type of alarm clock, whether it was your iPhone or maybe it was your child or for any of you farmers out there, maybe you had a rooster that woke you up this morning. The point is, is that something sounded forth to awaken you from your slumber. Well, imagine you go to bed tonight and tomorrow morning, instead of your iPhone or your child or the cockle-doodle-doo of a rooster, the Lord Jesus Christ thunders forth his voice from heaven to awake you. Now that would catch our attention, wouldn't it? And that's precisely what happens to the church of Sardis in our text this morning. Spiritually slumbering, they are called awake to hear what the Spirit has to say to the churches. So the question that they have to ask themselves and indeed that we have to ask ourselves this morning is whether our ears are attentive to hear what Christ has to say to the churches or whether we'll press snooze on that alarm clock that Christ has ushered forth. You know, I think even as we sang that song, where shall I be when the trumpet sounds, we should recognize that in this moment that you're here and that you can hear my voice. That is a mercy of God. He has not yet come in judgment, but in his kindness, in his mercy, he's allowed us to gather around his word yet again. So I would encourage you, listen closely and respond. Let's read the text now. Revelation chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. And to the angel of the church in Sardis write, the words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die. For I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Remember then what you received and heard. Keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I come against you. Yet you, you still have a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. The one who conquers will thus be clothed in, thus in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my father, and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. 
Well, to guide our time around God's word this morning, I want us to reflect on this main point. A church that truly bears the name of Christ must persevere to the end in good works to God through the spirit of the risen Christ. A church that truly bears the name of Christ must persevere to the end in good works to God through the spirit of the risen Christ. And in order to accomplish this end, the church must awaken and she must conquer. We'll see that the church will awaken from her spiritual slumber in verses 1 to 3 and that she will conquer with Christ in verses 4 to 6. Let's consider that first point of spiritual awakening. You should notice that the letter to Sardis is the first one in Christ's letters to the churches so far that doesn't receive a positive commendation. If you've been with us for our previous sermons on the letters to the churches in the book of Revelation, this is the first letter we come to where Christ does not have a positive commendation to give them at the outset. And it also refrains from mentioning any specific causes for Sardis's dire spiritual state. Unlike the evil threatening the church at Ephesus or the persecutions and slander at Smyrna or the heresies of the Nicolaitans in Pergamum or the temptress Jezebel that we considered last week with the church of Thyatira. The church at Sardis was just a dying church with a decaying ministry and a deplorable witness. You know, perhaps one of the problems with the church at Sardis was that their sheltered existence caused them to become spiritually lethargic. You know how it is. You get into a rhythm of life and things are easy and Spiritual priorities start to slip little by little. You let your guard down, everything's going okay. But that's exactly where Satan comes in and wreaks havoc. You know, the city of Sardis itself had been overcome twice in its early history because watchmen had fallen asleep. They had these huge cliffs that gave them protection um, as a natural barrier for their city. And yet they still had, as anyone should, some watchmen who watched the city. And at one point, these watchmen fell asleep and the city was conquered. But apparently they didn't learn their lesson because it happened a second time. The church of Sardis similarly followed suit. They had grown lax. They were content to maintain the reputation of being alive, even if their works would state otherwise. As we've seen in the previous letters, the pressures of sin and persecution facing the church and all sorts of temptations faced these churches in Asia Minor. There were threats all around them. And so if any church sought to have a, if they sought to have a high profile, if they were very adamant about their reputation of bearing the name of Christ, oh, they would certainly face backlash from the community around them. And so the fact that our church, the church of Sardis, doesn't receive a positive condemnation, commendation, is evidence that they just really didn't care to bear the name of Christ to their community. They had the reputation, or literally translated, they had the name of being alive, but they are in fact nearly spiritually dead. Jesus, with his x-ray vision, sees right through them and identifies their phony reputation. You know, the significance of the name that they bear cannot be overlooked, for if you remember from 
Revelation chapter 2, verse 17, that unless one bears a new name given to them by God, they will be rejected by the Father. You know, it's worth noting here that ultimately it doesn't matter what name you bear to the world if you bear a different name before God. It's not the community of people around you ultimately who will bear your name and bear witness of your name. It is the Lord Jesus Christ who will confess your name. A church prioritizing its public, re- public reputation before men over its private reputation before Christ is a little bit like shoddy workmanship. Yeah, it maybe looks good at first and it's got a nice aesthetic. It's got a fresh coat of paint on it, but it's just a facade. It quickly loses its functionality. It quickly wears out and it's no longer worth anything. After diagnosing the church of Sardis's dire state, Christ gives the urgent call to wake up. Wake up is the same word that Peter uses in 1 Peter chapter 5 verse 8 when he says, be watchful for the devil prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Wake up. Satan is prowling around you seeking to devour. He's looking for every threat. He's looking for every weakness that you might have so that he can expose it and so that he can bring you down. He is doing everything in his power to sing lullabies to those in Christ's church so that they might fall back asleep and fail to carry out the mission that Christ has given them. But Christ calls the church of Sardis and indeed he calls all of us to reject those lullabies and to strengthen what remains and is about to die. For any of you out there who have broken a bone before and had to wear a cast, you know what happens over the course of time as you wear that cast. The muscles underneath your arm or your leg or wherever that cast is begin to weaken. They begin to deteriorate. And over the course of time, if you just keep that cast on there, those muscles will die. That's what we call muscle atrophy. And the church here is experiencing spiritual atrophy. The church of Sardis had casted themselves with the delights of the world and subject themselves to that. But in response, Jesus prescribes some spiritual physical therapy for the good news is, is that so long as that muscle isn't completely dead, it can be strengthened back to good health. As any of you know, you go through physical therapy and it's painful, but it restores you back to full health. And that's exactly what Jesus is doing for the church here. He's calling them back to full health. You know, Christ's assessment that their works were not complete in the sight of God, that could be perceived as a a fairly peculiar assessment. You know, I thought that we were justified by faith in Christ alone, not by our works. Why would Jesus call this church then to strengthen themselves and to do works in completion with what Christ would require? You know, here we come to one of the most beautiful truths of the whole Bible and of salvation in Christ Jesus. We are saved by faith in Christ alone. So works are not the basis of our salvation, but they should be understood as necessary evidence of that salvation. 
you know, just as the right conditions are necessary, the water, the soil content, the exposure to the sun are necessary to cause a plant to grow and to flower, so too the Spirit's regenerative work in the life of a believer will necessarily cause that believer to flower with good works unto God and unto one another. What may seem like contradictory truths to us are not contradictory to God. We are eternally secure because God is determined to keep those who are his. As Romans 8 says, there is nothing, nothing that can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. 1 Thessalonians 5.23, the God of peace will sanctify you completely. But on the other hand, our text and others clearly indicate that you must persevere in the faith in order to be saved in the end. Perhaps you remember James's words that faith without works is dead. You know, I think that Colossians chapter one weds these truths really well. Paul writes there, and you who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. God presents us as those who are holy and blameless, but then what's the next phrase that he says after that family? He says, if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard. You know, that we are to continue, that we are to persevere in good works is evident even in our own text from those imperatives that you see there in verse three. The church is being called to remember the true gospel that they had received and heard for this is the basis of their hope. This is the basis of their perseverance. Just as the apostle Paul on many occasions called the believers in his various letters to remember the truths of the gospel. We are prone to forgetfulness, and so we must, as often as we can, recall these glorious, these wondrous truths of the gospel as a means of fueling our ability to persevere in the faith and to pursue good works before God and before others. The deceitfulness of sin and the pleasures of the world are doing all that they can to cause you to forget the gospel. Think about the age that we live in. Information overload. In your pocket, you have a phone likely that you can have access to endless amounts of information. And all of these these sources of information would feed your mind and that, that would inevitably feed your soul and cause you to forget the truths of the gospel or at the very least become lethargic where you forget to remember the truths of the gospel. You don't have to consciously forget the truths of the gospel in order to forget the truths of the gospel. Just by virtue of being in a secular, godless culture, everything around you will cause you to forget. But this remembrance of the gospel necessarily leads to keeping it, as you see in our text. That is, we are to keep it by obeying Christ's commands and by continually repenting of our sins. Christians are not those who are without sin, but are those who have resolved to turn against their sin to turn away from their sin and to, as best as they can, walk with Christ. And here's the good news, family. 
The system is rigged in our favor if you're in Christ. The system is rigged in our favor if you are in Christ. As Paul tells Titus in Titus 3, God has poured out his spirit on us, washing us, regenerating us, renewing us so that we might be careful to devote ourselves to good works. It's the spirit that washes us, that regenerates us, that renews us so that we can pursue these good works. God has graciously provided the strength and the means for the work that he requires. Like a child who believes themselves to be swimming, but in reality it's the parent's hand that's underneath their chest that holds them up. Or like all the teammates to LeBron James over the years who thought they were contributing, but really they were just riding LeBron James back to the championship. We are those who ride the coattails of the one who even makes our good works possible, friends. I hope that that encourages you. If you look back at verse 1, you'll notice that Jesus introduces himself as the one who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. If you look at verse 6, you see also another reference to the spirit. Jesus wisely and intentionally bookends this letter with mention to the Holy Spirit. You know, those mention of the seven stars also came up in the letter to the church of Ephesus, but this is the first time that Jesus self-identifies as the one who holds the seven spirits of God. If we look back at Revelation chapter 1, verse 4, we discover that the seven spirits of God represent the perfect Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is not some kind of ethereal addition to the more tangible persons of the Trinity like the Father and the Son. No, the Holy Spirit is God and he is to be worshipped as such. And the life-giving spirit was needed to give vitality back to the church of Sardis and to aid them in pursuing good works before the Father. Friends, this is the, this is the beauty of the new covenant. Jesus, as the crucified, risen, and ascended Christ, now gives the gift of the Holy Spirit so that sinners might awaken from their spiritual slumber and pursue works that please God and contribute to the aid of others. Until Pentecost, the Holy Spirit had only come down on a few independent persons and only for a specific time and a specific purpose and in a specific place. But do you realize, friends, that it has now descended on the whole church. In Acts 2, when Christ sends the Spirit to descend on the church, it has remained there since where it dwells and where it works, even to this day. Do you realize that at this very moment, in this time and place, as we gather here as University Baptist Church, that the Holy Spirit is working to sanctify our church through the ministry of the word. And all that we've done this morning from singing together, from praying, from reading scripture to now hearing God's word preached, the spirit is using those means to sanctify us. What a gift that the spirit, that the risen Christ has sent to us, not only empowered the early church, but empowers us now. 
as long as the Lord tarries and as long as we get to remain here and gather every Sunday, the Spirit is with us, sanctifies us, matures us, builds us up into Christ. Herman Bovink has wonderful words on this when he writes, just as the Spirit first sanctified Christ through his suffering, perfected him, and led him to the highest pinnacle, so he is now committed in the same way to forming the body of Christ until it achieves its full maturity and constitutes the fulfillment of him who fulfills all in all. Satan would use habitual sin to cause you to believe that you cannot overcome sin, that it ultimately sin is what has the power over you. Maybe you feel like pornography holds victory over you, that you just can't kick that habit. Or maybe you feel like you don't know how to function apart from escape into alcohol or some other substance, even like social media. Maybe you can't curb the jealousy that you feel toward other families who seem to have it better together than your family does. Maybe you're angry that retirement hasn't turned out the way that you had hoped it would. Whatever your temptation, whatever your temptation may be, as you sit there and as the Spirit reminds you of sin in your life, whatever that temptation may be, if you are in Christ, the risen Christ has sent His Spirit to give you victory over that sin. Do not believe the lie that sin somehow has power over you. If you are in Christ, the Holy Spirit is working in you to sanctify you and to help accomplish the work that he desires. This doesn't mean that you'll never sin, but it does mean that your sins and your temptations will no longer have the power that they used to. Pray without ceasing that God would sanctify you by his spirit and don't despair. And for those who finally fail to walk in the power of the Holy Spirit, the warning is dire. They will face the judgment of that risen Christ who will come like a thief in the night. Just as we sang earlier in our service, judgment day is drawing nigh. Where will you be when that trumpet sounds? Awake and go to Jesus. After all, as we considered at the beginning, a church that truly bears the name of Christ will persevere to the end in good works to God through the spirit of the risen Christ. And that church that heeds the call to wake up will in fact conquer. This leads us to our second point there in verses four through six, conquer. You know, I think the first way that our text would teach us to conquer is by following the example of those who, by God's grace, are standing firm in the faith. Christ points to those who have not soiled their garments in verse 4 as a positive example of what it means to walk in the security of one's salvation and to pursue righteous works in this life. Despite the temptations of sin all around, they have persevered and they have not soiled their garments. They have walked with Christ. 
And these saints are a huge gift to local churches that ought to be commended, that ought to be cherished in the life of our church. Not only do they model faithfulness, but they encourage the weak, the disheveled, the shame-induced sinner around them to hope in God. For if they can conquer their sin by the power of God's Holy Spirit, so too can we. For those of you weak in the faith, those of you feeling like you're barely holding on, or for those of you young in the faith, look to the faith of those who have not soiled their garments in our church. Look to someone like our sister Mildred Summers, who has prayed without ceasing for this church, for many of you, for decades. Look to someone like our brother Mike Lawrence, who has faithfully and humbly walked with Christ and served this church selflessly, served this church sacrificially, or to our friends Nat and Randy Dodson, who have selflessly served in the children's ministry, laboring to teach children the truths of the gospel year after year. Think about our sister. Nancy Hannon, who went to be with the Lord this past week. Her unwavering faith in God, her abounding hope in Christ, her confidence in the spirit to complete the work that he had started in her remained steadfast to the end. And she now walks with Christ in white robes. She now stands before God because Jesus has confessed her name to the Father. And God has given us saints like these to encourage us, to help us persevere, to help us know that ultimately Christ has the victory. And if you belong to him, so too can you. But we can look to these saints for encouragement and for endurance to persevere. If you're an older saint in this church who is faithfully walking with the Lord, I want you to know that Jesus recognizes your work. You may feel that as the years go on, that there's less and less for you to do or that it's just the younger generation that has to do the work of the ministry that will carry the torch. But I'd encourage you, never forsake to share the gift of faithfulness that you have with those in our body. As long as God has you here, he has much in store for you. And if you're a kid or you're a teenager in this room, I want you to listen closely for a minute. If you're a kid or a teenager in this room, I want you to listen closely. Because you are in this room, God loves you. Seated around you are many of your parents and your parents' friends, all of whom deeply love you and all of whom want you to know God and to love God. Ask them to teach you more about who Jesus is and what he has done for you. Ask them what it's like to, to know God. What does it mean to know God? Ask your parents these questions, and I know that they would be overjoyed to talk with you. The way that God has designed the Christian life 
in our endurance to the end, our ability to conquer is with the help of one another, those who have not soiled their garments. The second way we conquer with Christ from our text is by looking to Christ to clothe us. In the first book of the Bible, Genesis, Adam and Eve walked with God in the garden, and even after they had sinned and found out that they were naked, God easily could have on the spot rendered judgment. But what does he do instead? He clothes them in their nakedness. He clothes them with the animal skins. Fast forward to the last book of the Bible, the book of Revelation, and here even in our text, we have assurance that all who belong to God through Jesus Christ will walk in heaven with him, clothed in white garments, purchased for them by the blood of the Lamb. From beginning to end, our God has always been a merciful God who by no means leaves the guilty unpunished, but he was also slow to anger, not wishing that any should perish. From beginning to end, our God is a God who clothes us at our most vulnerable. From beginning to end, our God is a God who finishes what he starts. From beginning to end, our God is faithful. Our old self is being transformed into the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge after the image of its creator. Praise God that the Bible is a story, a grand story of God's determination to take the filth of a people who rejected him and to place it on his own righteous son so that we might be cleansed and enjoy fellowship with him again. Imagine that you've been invited to get to spend some time with the Queen of England. Right before you arrive, you pee all over yourself. Your pants are completely soaked in urine. There's absolutely no way that those dudes with the tall fuzzy hats are going to let you in to Buckingham Palace. But along walks a man in freshly laundered white linens. And he says, hey, I see your predicament. How about this? I've got these nice, freshly laundered white clothes. I would love to trade with you so that you can go into the palace. On how much more of a grand scale has Christ done that for us? He has taken our garments that are soiled with sin, soiled with the filth of our rebellion, soiled with the filth of our conscious rejection of him. And he has put them on himself. And for all those who respond in faith, he's clothed us with his righteousness. Verse 5 gives us assurance that for all those who have been clothed in Christ's righteous robes, he will never, never blot their name out of his book. You know, the first time I was reading this statement this week, I will never blot his name out of the book. I wondered, you know, this, this could seem to imply that some people's names could be blotted out of the book, that they could be erased. But this is not the case. Instead, Christ is saying that if you conquer, 
you will not be erased. And if you are not erased, you will be conquered. Christ knows who are his, and he will cause them to persevere to the end. Those who truly bear the name of Christ can have confidence that he will cause them to persevere. Even as we sing in that hymn, when you fear your faith will fail, who is it that holds you fast? It is Christ who holds you fast. If you struggle with assurance of salvation, that is to have the confidence that you are truly saved, that you truly belong to God, take comfort knowing that the object of your confidence is not in yourself. It is in God who is determined to accomplish what he has started. Friends, these glorious truths that we've been exploring, that we are those who are filthy but are clothed in Christ's righteousness, or those truths are only precious to those who truly bear the name of Christ. If you consciously reject the name of Christ, or if as you've been listening, you don't think you've ever truly believed in what Jesus has done, I'd urge you to consider your state before a holy God. You know, the Bible teaches that we have all sinned, that we all fall short of the glory of God. And there's absolutely nothing that we can do to work ourselves out of that. It's like trying to scrub a wine stain out of a white t-shirt. We cannot do it on our own. There has to be sovereign intervention. But the good news, the good news is all you have to do is recognize that truth. All you have to do is to recognize that in and of yourself, you are incapable of going to the Father. But when you confess that weakness, even as we'll sing in our final hymn, all the fitness that he requires is to find your need of him. All you have to do is to look to Christ to say, I believe that your work here on this earth, your perfect life, your death on the cross in my place, bearing the penalty of the sins that I did, and that your burial, your resurrection, your ascension to God, that all of that, that entire work was complete, that you completed the work that I couldn't do, that you have absolved my sins. You've taken them upon yourself so that if all I do is respond with faith, that is to believe that Christ's work is sufficient and to then turn from my sins and trust in God for my salvation, the Bible says that you will be saved. All you have to do is to turn to him, admit your need, and trust that Christ's work is sufficient for you. And if you believe this, dear friends, you will conquer one day alongside others who are dressed in white. In closing, let's consider the third and final way that we conquer with Christ, which is by witnessing to a watching world. James 1.18 refers to God bringing us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. The end time life of conquering is not something that only happens in the future. It has already begun 
in the existence of believers. What does this mean? Well, we've considered one means of this, that's that we conquer sin in this life. But another means is that God's people are participating in a new creation, a new creation, a new work of creation that God is doing even before our final resurrection. This is perhaps what the church of Sardis forgot. They forgot to take hold, to conquer and to go about this mission that Christ had given them. The Christian life is so much more marvelous than we often give it credit for. Through Christ, in the power of his spirit, you are able to extinguish the flaming darts of the evil one. Through Christ, in the power of his spirit, you are able to stand firm against the temptations of the devil. Through Christ, in the power of his spirit, you are able to play a role in building Christ's church, a church which not even the gates of hell will prevail against. The local church is the God-ordained institution through which God seeks to create and to preserve a people for himself and also for the good of those around them. As John himself says in the first chapter of Revelation, Christ has freed us from our sins by his blood. And then he goes on to give the purpose clause. Christ has freed us from our sins by his blood that we might be a kingdom, priests to his God and Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. God, in his sovereign judgment, has determined that it is through local churches that he will accomplish his divinely appointed ends on this earth. It's no coincidence that Christ writes these letters to seven, in the eyes of the world, seemingly insignificant local churches. It's no coincidence that in God's providence and in his wisdom, he knew that these letters would be preserved in the Bible so that churches to this day, 2,000 years later, could also proclaim them in their gatherings. God's plans for his church are special. And these churches, indeed our own church, are to be separate from the world for the sake of the world, which is why God cares so much about their purity. What these truths practically mean is that every interaction you have with people outside these walls is a means through which you have the opportunity to bear Christ's name to others and to be a royal ambassador of the kingdom of God. Though this doesn't necessarily mean that you will share the gospel with every person you interact with ever, it does mean that the name of Christ on you should be evident. Part of the problem with the church of Sardis is that they had a false name that only gave the appearance of being a true name. And so their witness, their witness had no power. You know, when I lived in Texas in college, there was this barbecue joint in town that caught a ton of traffic. They smoked their meats right there inside the shop. And so inevitably, if you were eating there, when you left that place, you smelled like those smoked meats. I remember on numerous occasions after eating at this place and going over to our friend's house, they would say, hey, you've been at Rudy's, haven't you? They hadn't even been with me, but they knew because I had the aroma 
on me. When you leave the walls of the church this week, when you leave the walls of the church next week, do others smell the aroma of Christ on you? Is it apparent in your breath that you've been feasting on God's word? Is it evident in your lifestyle that you've been smoked in the fellowship of the saints? Is it clear in your hopes, values, and fears that you've been seasoned with prayer? Would your values, your priorities, your bank statements, your service to others indicate that you've marinated in the mission of God to make disciples? For the church of Sardis, the answer at this time was a resounding no. But the good news is, again, that because we're here, that because Christ has allowed us to sit under his word, we have the opportunity to respond. With the help of the spirit of the risen Christ, they could fulfill what God required of them. Church family, we can conquer with Christ through the help of faithful saints in the hope of the one who clothes us and in power to the world around us. The message to the church of Sardis is serious, but it's not without hope. Christ has mercifully given them another opportunity to hear once again what the Spirit says to the churches. And the Spirit's message is clear. I will cause all those who are mine to persevere to the end. Keep going. If you do, I will glorify you in the end so that you can walk with me in white before the Father. But if you don't, I will come like a thief in the night to bring just judgment. Let's pray and ask God for his help to persevere in faithfulness to the end.